Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Thrice cursed spell resistance. It's almost as if the universe is deliberately trying to force some sort of arbitrary equality between those of us who can reshape matter with our thoughts and those who cannot. The Varsuvius, Order of the Stick. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today, we have a special guest with us, Elliot, also known as Moth Prophet on Reddit, who wrote the Reddit post that we referred to a few weeks back when we did our spellcrafting in our Dungeon Master's Guide Deep Dive episode. Elliot, welcome to Undercommon Taste. Hi, guys. I'm really excited to be here, actually. Yeah, we're really glad to have you on. So, you want to start off by giving us a little bit about yourself, whatever you're comfortable with? Of course. Yeah, so I've been playing Dungeons & Dragons only 5th edition for about 5 years. I was pretty much the first one to get into it in my friend group, so I've been DMing the vast majority of the games that I've been in. So I really like making content like that online, and I kind of just go on string string of thought tangents, and people sometimes like them. Yeah, I... Whenever I found this particular one on Reddit, it was one of those where I was like, okay, the title's got me hooked. I'm going to start into this and just see what it's about. And I got about two paragraphs in and realized that that was going to be a long sit on the can because I had to finish it. (laughs) And then I think that's go ahead. It was one of those things where the big chunk at the top was really interesting. But what really caught me was that little bit of almost filler that you put in at the end where you were talking about creating your own, I think it was specifically cantrips, but creating your own spells, how to sort of balance those out a little bit so that if your characters wanted another poison or acid spell, you could just take a fire spell and reskin it. And this is how you could do that. Which I mean, is amazingly well thought out. And a lot of people don't really put that much thought because again they go by book as written or they try to rebuild the wheel as it were and then their spells tend to be completely unbalanced so this was such it was subtle it doesn't change a lot but it really works and that was just amazingly well done well thank you so much i think i stumbled upon the idea that it was just really you could base all cantrips on a single baseline you know it's more or less ray of frost or firebolt were probably the first or second cantrips they made for 5th edition. And to an extent, they definitely just shifted the dice a little bit up or down to make the existing cantrips that we have today. And then sometimes they make Eldritch Blast and, you know. And told the dead. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, the fact that you've only really played 5th edition, or you don't have, like I said, I've, I started playing 3rd edition, but I've always looked back into 2nd edition, some of the older things, you know, going through, and you've had people who've literally played Dungeons and Dragons since it came out in the 70s, and they never made that connection of, hey, it's just, they reskin this over and over and over again, and you were able to see that core mechanic, and I just, I applaud, absolutely applaud your ability to see that, because that really does simplify creation of things so very much well thank you so much and and i was able to take that because you presented it so very well and extrapolated out a little bit for the spellcrafting guide that we released which with a little bit of tinkering kind of works up to about fifth level spells and as we discussed for a little bit afterwards there are some changes that are going to be made in revisions one of which being magical Bludgeoning, piercing, slashing damage definitely needs to get bumped up a tier slot. Mainly because most of your resistances to bludgeoning, piercing, slashing damage are specifically for non-magical. So there aren't very many things that will actually resist the magical ones. I think 
a lot of it is that I don't also put a ton of effort into the, you know, sixth level and higher. Because also Wizards of the Coast doesn't. They kind of throw the towel in at that point. You know, most abilities will cap out at about fifth level. That's when Mystic Arcanum comes in. That's when you can't make spell slots any higher than that for Wizards with Arcane Recovery. At that point, you're really god level anyway. And the spells can be a little bit... They can have a bit of a bigger bell curve on that one, so to speak. Because they won't change as much as they would if they were overpowered at lower levels because everyone has got powerful stuff at that point. And I was going to say, unless you start a campaign at a higher level, you often don't see those higher level spells and abilities. Most campaigns tend to cap out around level 10, 11, 12 for the characters for the most part. Like I said, unless you're specifically making a campaign that's going to go higher than that, or if you've got a really good group that has some good cohesion and you can sit there and do like a year-long campaign or something like that. And in the five years I've played, I honestly have never played or dm'd a game that has gone that far so i also i can't speak to those as much as i can to the earlier games because i've started over and over and over again new games and i've seen a lot of how the games run at the lower levels more so than the higher levels so the first thing the main thing that we asked you on to talk about is basically the rest of the posts that we didn't cover the first time we talked about it which was talking about this concept that you have of soft vulnerabilities. So do you want to go into a little bit on what a soft vulnerability actually is and the sort of thing that you were trying to get to with that? Absolutely. So generally my definition for a hard vulnerability versus a soft vulnerability is going to be a vulnerability where the creature still does not want to take that damage, but A hard vulnerability will just be the double damage, the classic one that they put in a lot of stat blocks in the monster manual. The soft vulnerabilities I'm talking about are things much more related to, you know, zombies with the undead fortitude who, when they take radiant damage, they don't get that save to come back. Or trolls who take acid or fire damage and suddenly they don't get their regeneration anymore. I think it's definitely a much better system to have things run like that because at the end of the day, The players are not supposed to know how much health a creature has. So a flat out, you do twice as much damage, effectively boils down to just a narrative rather than something that actually feels good. The combat doesn't necessarily change, whereas the flow of a game and the flow of an actual battle changes drastically when the troll stops regenerating or the zombies start actually dying. That is very true. And you bring up a great point, and that's even the most immersive players going to unfortunately be metagaming a bit. Like you said, if you fight 20 kobolds, you're going to start figuring out about where that hit pool is, you know. So if you start trying to account for that, like I said, even the most immersive players are going to do that from time to time. So you bring up the point of those soft resistances, being able to play with that a bit is actually a really good idea. Well, thank you. I think a lot of it is... You have to also look at the fact that as a DM myself, it's a trade secret, you always adjust the hit points, right? They go up or down depending on how much you need. And at the end of the day, a vulnerability with that, it basically means that your super strong boss just dies faster. And you don't get the good narrative, and if the players crush an enemy, they don't feel the same level of satisfaction as they do in a bit more of a drawn-out fight. They get less time to use their cool new abilities. You get maybe two or three turns, and that's it. And that's not really what you want. And as much as you feel, oh, look, this radiant damage did 
extra damage and you can describe it as a DM as much as you want. It's not going to feel the same as, look, you hit him with that radiant damage and maybe he's slowed down for 20 feet of movement and now he can't reach your fighter. He has to waste his whole action dashing. That makes your players feel a lot more intelligent and it makes them feel a lot cooler, I guess, is as much as I can describe it. I could totally see that, yeah. Yeah, and I really like the system that you're proposing. I can see where Wizards was going with doing it the way they did it because it simplifies things. It does make it easier for the person running the game to keep track of it, but it does sacrifice an awful lot of the narrative aspect to it. It sacrifices an awful lot of the strategic aspect of it. Yes, very much so. The soft vulnerability has very much a second edition feel to it, which is probably one of the reasons why I like it so much. And again, just my heart twitters at second edition, and I'm sure it's fanboy looking back as my first influence, but things were so much more subtle then. And again, as we've talked about multiple times, Wizards really has tried to simplify the bookkeeping end of things to make the game more accessible, which is great. But as far as alternate rules for advanced or seasoned players, this is absolutely gorgeous. And I definitely don't blame them for trying to simplify, right? Fifth edition is the edition I started on, and I can never say that it isn't the best edition to learn on. I've started so many new players on it, and I work at a bookstore where I start new players at D&D constantly. So it really, it's the easiest to explain, it's the easiest to get into, and that bodes well for why they've been so popular and there's been such an uprising of Dungeons & Dragons. I tried really hard in my post to make sure that it wasn't super difficult. And that's why I tried to tie them back to monster types. Because then, if you know what they are, you can just choose yes or no. Am I going to use it on this monster or I'm not? If you have a list sitting in front of you, then it makes it very easy to determine maybe this one doesn't have the vulnerability, maybe this one does. And I tried to make them generally relatively easy as well. Like the dragons, for example, it's just disadvantage on spells against lightning, for example. And if a player comes to me and says, hey, look, I have shocking grasp. Can I get advantage on the attack? Sure. It's not written into the rule, but there's no reason I can't just say yes on the fly. That particular ruling isn't going to break the game, you know? Right, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And again, that also shows good adaptability from the DM. And again, the DM should know the people at his table. He should know the scenario. And so again, it's about having fun. As Ian and I have said many times, the point of playing any game is to have fun. So there are a couple of the uh, specific ones that I wanted to touch on a little bit from your post. I don't really want to go through line by line and talk about each one individually. Of course. But you were talking about breaking down fiends based on their subtype, which in older editions they had. You know, devils were definitely their own thing and demons were definitely their own thing and yugoloths and all of those. And what you were pointing out was that they had all been lumped up under fiends, which all had basically the same set of resistances and immunities. And so you wanted to break it out a little bit to make it more interesting. So if you wanted to touch on that a little bit. Of course. So what I specifically looked at for Fiends was because a vast majority of the lore within 5th edition on them is about this giant blood war that the Fiends, the devils and the demons are clashing against one another. But whatever side you believe in, it doesn't really make sense that this is an endless war that has no... It doesn't shift one way or another, because either 
the devils are far too powerful and they would wipe out entire hordes of demons or the endless demons would eventually overrun the devils. It doesn't really make a ton of sense in that way where they wouldn't be able to have some weapon against the other one. You'll notice that because they are fiends, a lot of them have fire damage or poison damage, and that's across devils and demons. But their main enemy isn't celestials at this point. It is other fiends. So either they would adapt or they would have naturally had something to deal with that. So what I decided to do was I chose the demons. I wanted to give them a feature where, you know, fire was especially good against them because most demons are completely immune to fire. And I pulled that off. I said, you know, the devils have a lot of fire abilities and I want them to be able to throw a fireball and kill an entire horde of demons because I want the devils to be able to take out more creatures at a time. Whereas for the demons, I want them to be able to overrun the devils, which is why I gave the devils poison vulnerability, essentially, because that way it's an ability that will be not quite so bad for a lower level devil. They don't really want to retreat, so they don't need those abilities, or they don't need to dash, they don't need to disengage. But the higher level devils, who if they get swarmed and they can't run away, they risk demotion to a lower level, that's bad. So it is, in the way I themed the abilities, I made sure to make one affect weaker enemies more than the stronger enemies, and then on the other side, I wanted the stronger enemies to have more of an effect than the weaker enemies. I like that. So I don't know if you've ever played Blizzard games or not, but are you familiar with either StarCraft 1 or StarCraft 2? I'm unfortunately not. I'm more of a Diablo player myself. Okay. So, you know, StarCraft 1 and StarCraft 2, it's broken into three races. You've got the Protoss, which are kind of the advanced alien. They're psionic. Generally, they've got the big tech, things like that. You've got humans, of course, because you've got to throw humans and everything. And you've got the Zerg, which is a very swarmy, bug-like creature. Their base was from insects, and they've kind of evolved from that. But the way you describe this battle between the fiends and the devils feels very much like that Protoss Zerg, where the Zerg is just numbers and numbers and numbers where the devils would be the protoss their armored one can take out many at once but it's just eventually yes they can be overwhelmed by sheer numbers so it does have that kind of balance feel to me which i really like because again i'm a huge starcraft fan and absolutely i think that was why it was really important to highlight the blood war you know because that is something that not every player or every dm is going to contain in their world but honestly figuring out devils and fiends and demons and all this in your own world is a big undertaking. So I have to imagine that a lot of people will just steal the Blood War, or at least large parts of it, because you need something to fill the dead air of stuff that you've never decided to work on, right? Essentially, in my worlds, it's if I haven't changed it, it's probably the same. Like, if I haven't decided the Feywild is something else, the Feywild is probably just normally the Feywild, you know? And that's how I tend to run my games, and I think... In the way I laid it out, I tried to make it pretty user-friendly, you know, but it won't fit in everyone's world, and that's okay. The idea of this concept is more to just suggest to people, this is something you can do. If giants in your world are not religious at all, there could easily be a different damage type that you could figure out for them. Absolutely. Yeah, and just touching on the fiends a little bit, throwing this fire weakness on demons and this poison weakness on devils, it really adds a whole lot to the dynamic of the blood war that you don't get the way it's written right now. But it also leaves that spot in the middle for the Yugoloths because the Yugoloths, according to lore, 
were basically commissioned by Asmodeus. He basically commissioned some night hags to make him an army that was not affiliated with the Nine Hells. So the Yugoloths are the neutral evil, where the devils are lawful evil and the demons are chaotic evil. They're that in-between, and they serve as mercenary units in the Blood War. And it fits really well that basically they're an engineered mercenary race that actually bounces from side to side in the Blood War, depending on who's paying better. Yeah, I like that. It makes sense that they would retain that fire resistance and poison resistance because they were engineered that way. Absolutely. And if you wanted to give them something, it would have to be something that neither the demons nor the devils would really have access to. You know, if you want to go back to the classic radiant damage against devils, like the power of Christ compels you type, you could easily put it on the Yugoloths. Yeah, I was going to go ahead and claim radiant damage for that. And that would actually flip your coin. And now you could have your war between paradise and the infernal, you know, referencing Diablo. And all of that would tie perfectly in just all right. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. They were designed for the blood war. The night hags had no ability to make them resistant to radiant damage. In fact, they're weak to it. But they don't really fight celestial stuff that much unless they are hired to do so. And they probably don't want to. Yeah. Yeah, that that would require a hefty commission to get them to fight Celestials. I want to work that out in my brain now because I could just see a hag sitting there like somehow controlling some quote quote lower level Celestials, making some deals. Oh, that could be fun. Anyway. (laughs) The issue that you're going to run into with that is that there aren't very many lower level Celestials. Celestials, yeah. You only need one or two though. You just got to get that foot in the door. You don't necessarily have to have them be hired. It's the old kill a unicorn and take its blood thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. There are very many sort of celestial animals and a couple night hags with the right amount of preparation time, they could easily Batman out a scheme to take down a Kirin or something like that and, and use its parts or something to outfit their particular strain of Yugoloths to not have that radiant vulnerability. Yeah. And the other one that I wanted to touch on and talk about a little bit was what you came up with for beasts and some monstrosities where they would have a certain reaction to thunder damage. Yeah, I thought that one was very fun because you generally look at animals as either predator or prey. It's a skittish animal or one who generally doesn't have a lot of things to worry about. But animals in general are scared by loud noises, you know? If you've ever been a hunter, you know very well that the first shot a lot of the time is all you got because they're gone after that. And Thunder is very much the 5th edition stand-in for sound. And you can see that in many of the spells like Thunder Wave and Shatter where they have large radiuses where the sound can be heard out to. You can only imagine that would be very loud within the area that is actually happening in. Yeah, and in older editions, at least in third edition, it was actually called sonic damage as opposed to thunder damage. Right. And at that point, you can justify that, you know, if I throw a thunder wave at a deer, for example, and it survives, it's gone. Like, it's leaving. It does not want to be here anymore because it is not going to fight. But, you know, if you start firing off guns or very loud noises near a mother bear, for example it's going to frighten them enough to probably lash out. So I wanted to make sure that there was a duality in which of these two abilities are you going to give this creature? Is it skittish or is it going to lash out at someone? So I made the beasts have the frightened effect 
if they were one of the skittish creatures. And I also gave them an adrenaline effect so they can immediately use their reaction to make a melee attack if they are next to someone. So the players have to do a little bit of thinking and go, is this going to scare this creature away? Or is it going to frighten it enough to take a swing at me? Yeah, you're triggering fight or flight at that point. That's really what it is. And so it's a question of, is it going to flee or is it going to fight? I would take one thing, though, with this, and I was kind of thinking this. So you've got your coin flip between fight and flight. And of course, what happens if the coin lands on its edge? So you, depending on how familiar with Western lore you are, if you've ever dealt with cattle or anything like that, there's the stereotypical stampede. So what if this thing, you know, in a fright tries to just bull rush whatever's in front of it? And you know what? The good part about that is that the adrenaline ability that I gave them, it ties into just, you can make one melee attack. So creatures who have that natural prone or shove ability on their attacks, which a lot of cows and goats and stuff like that have, they get that just as a reaction, and then they can leave. So if you were to try and make an attack of opportunity against them, but you're prone, you already have disadvantage. So it's kind of like a knocks you over and leaves, and you're not going to be able to swing back against them, at least not very effectively. And there are also a lot of creatures that think this is more of an older edition. I don't think it's as common in 5th edition, but I think it's called Trample, where basically it can charge through the space occupied by smaller creatures, and then that creature has to make a dexterity save or take bludgeoning damage as it passes through. I think that was a third edition thing, yeah. I could definitely see tacking this adrenaline ability onto a creature like that. 100%. Where, you know, it's just going to book it towards the nearest exit, and it's going to bull rush through whoever is standing in its way. Definitely. And I thought there was just as much of a fitting ability for, you know, fire for beasts or monstrosities. In someone else's world, it could just be a torch is enough to make the wolves leave you alone. Or generally another, like, I'm a big horror fan, you know? So tying that back to you might be in a nighttime setting, if there's a monstrosity coming after you, like, I know, a... Goodness, I should know what that one with the tentacles is. Uh, a displacer beast coming after you. Maybe they don't like the light, because they are based on cats. So carrying a torch might be enough to stop a displacer beast from coming after you and it could be worked into your lore within your campaign it could be make sure when you go into those forests there's displacer beasts out there make sure you have a light with you if it's nighttime or you're gonna get attacked i would love to do that and it would be very map intensive but to run a scenario that was based on light management so very much like there's something like displacer beast or something that are held off by your torches or whatnot you know depending on range but Either there's wind or your torches only have, you know, okay, fine, you have a torch, but it's only going to last for five turns, you know, or whatever, how that would go. That would actually make for a really exciting scenario. And I would also, I would almost go so far as to say that it has to be fire. Yes. Magical light, like the light spell, it doesn't have the same effect because it isn't fire. And it is specifically the fire aspect of this light that scares them. It's not light in general because, you know, it's light in the daytime. And while they may be primarily nocturnal, the light itself isn't what scares them. It's the fire. That's a nice touch. Yeah, because you could have a bright moon and they'd be like, so the hell what? Yeah. And that would add a little bit to the resource management portion of it because you get a torch. A torch will last for 30 minutes or an hour or however long you decide that it's going to last. You have to figure out how long it's going to take you to get from point A to point B, how many torches you're going to need to get there. Are you going to need torches to get there and come back? 
are you going to waste spell slots just to kind of keep a middle ground if you're out of torches? Or are you going to like start sacrificing, you know, your bag or your shirt because you're torturing out and you need something else that's going to burn for a time? Yeah. Oh, really, that would be a lot of fun. Oh my God, we got to do that. It really ties back to a lot of classic pop culture. And that's where I get a lot of my ideas from. Really the whole red flower thing from the Jungle Book. Or, you know, the horror campaigns being very much like the Darkwood game that is a top-down, very scary game that is not reliant on jump scares it's just you're out there in the woods and it's dark and you can only see what's in front of you and you don't know what's coming up behind you you don't know any of that the information is part of the fear and it's part of the adrenaline that will make your players remember that time when we almost died even if you don't have a single enemy attack them that's wonderfully immersive. And now this would be hard to do, particularly for me, because my vision's absolutely terrible. But running a scenario like this or like a one-off under candlelight. Absolutely. You know, there are plenty of good YouTube channels that provide excellent ambient music or even not music, just ambient tracks that just last for eight hours. Your game's not going to go that long. So you can just throw that on towards the beginning, have it be just enough that you can hear it in the back, but it's not disrupting what you're trying to accomplish. And you have the potential for a very scary game for those who are a little bit more skittish. And that's not something a lot of people think about in 5th edition. Let's break out our hags and do this so we can have a whole like Blair Witch scenario. <laughs> yeah, once we're able to actually meet and play in person again, that would actually be a whole lot of fun, yeah. A great Halloween. I might have to plan this out. Oh my god, that's, yeah. <laughs> so when we were talking a little bit before we got started and that there was one creature type that wasn't in your original post that we both agreed we wanted to touch on a little bit. And that was the Fae because there is a lot of lore wrapped up around the Fae. And in older editions, there actually were cold iron weapons that had a certain extra affinity against the Fae. And so you would, if you knew that you were going to be going up against fey creatures, you would actually go and seek out a cold iron weapon to use because it gave you a bit of an advantage. Yeah, so I think a lot of what we touched on there was that a really cool thing that you could do, because a lot of what I've done here is make damage types much better for casters. The majority of martial characters do not have abilities that deal radiant damage, fire damage, that kind of stuff. It's not super common. What we talked about for the Fey was that you could have their pseudo weakness be a vulnerability or a soft vulnerability to non-magical metal weapons. Yeah, so that would be, you know, the reason to keep that great axe that you started off with at level one. That would be the reason why you would just keep this regular mundane weapon around. If you knew you were going to be coming into a lot of contact with fey creatures, because they are, as fey creatures inherently magical that perhaps by throwing an enchantment onto a weapon by making that weapon magical you're bringing it more in tune with the physiological nature of fey creatures in general but where a just standard mundane steel weapon would be completely anathema because there's no magic to it yeah. What I could see with this is like if you're in the middle of like an ancient elven city, you know, the height of their culture. And so everything's enchanted. Everything's magical because they're elves and, you know, everything has to be a plus one or higher because elves. And suddenly there's fey incursion of one form or another and you're scrambling to find, you know, 
just an old iron dagger or a fork or anything, you know, you're looking for that simple mundane thing that just doesn't exist anymore because they are so hoity-toity or they're so advanced that everything lower has been discarded as trash. It's like Final Fantasy IV and Yang's wife who fought him off with their nonstick frying pan. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And at that point, it might even force someone to disenchant weapons that they have, you know? And just in a hard situation where they're like, oh, goodness, I have something bad coming. Like, if you have someone in a Feywild city like that, you're really putting the ball in their court. Forcing someone to disenchant like an ancient heirloom or something like that, because it's just the only thing around that's even close. And I think an interesting thing about that is we have to imagine that Fey are very much tricksters, right? Imagining that maybe they have some degree of control even over magical weapons, you know, perhaps you hit them with a magical weapon and it reflects the effects back onto you is a very Feywild type effect. That would be something, I don't know if these weapons are in 5th edition, I know they were in 3rd, but they were called backbiting or backbiter weapons, or it was a spell of backbiting that would cause any kind of wooden weapon to reflect or basically cause its damage to the wielder. So something like that, I could definitely see Fey using a spell or an ability like that. Absolutely. Well, it's like the Nilbog even, right? It's not exactly a Fey creature, if I recall, but it turns your damage into healing a lot of the time. So if Fey have abilities similar to that and making the non-magical weapon be the only way to get through, the players are going to be very confused until you give them the hint about it. But once you do, it basically gives them a whole new arsenal of weapons that they hadn't considered to use. They're sitting around with their many enchanted weapon pieces and go, oh wait, I still do have that iron dagger or whatnot. You know? It's very cool. Yeah, and I can even see from just a simplicity standpoint maybe even going so far as to say that a magical weapon inverts its attack and damage bonus whenever you're attacking a fey. So a plus two longsword ends up becoming a minus two longsword against the fey. Oh, that's very cool. Oh, that is insidious and beautiful. I, and well I love done. that. Yeah, that one just came to me. So sometimes I have brilliant ideas. Yes. They're few and far between, but sometimes I have them. That was beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Beautifully done. But yeah, that would be a way, especially for a higher level fey, a fey creature that would have a little bit more control over the magic around them that would be something that you could throw on them to really add a little bit of interesting bit to that encounter largely because if you look in the monster manual there aren't very many high cr fey i think the highest cr fey are like a cr 12 or something and that's the eladrin the various eladrin monster manual entries so there really aren't very many high cr fey creatures but if you throw something like that onto an eladrin that bump them up really quick. That would bump them up really quick, especially if you're hitting them at an appropriate level. So level 10 to 13, 14, somewhere in that range, you're probably going to have most of the party with plus one, plus two weapons. Yeah. Maybe even the occasional plus three, if it's just a straight plus magic weapon. So throwing that on it, where not only is the magical weapon less effective but have the non-magical weapon be more effective, that would add a whole different dynamic level to that encounter. I need to throw that in the Feywild campaign. And I mean, honestly, if you're in a Feywild game and it takes place almost entirely in the Feywild, it gives you the potential to run a quest for some large artifact that has a number of stories behind it. 
and then the players find it, and it's super good at killing Faye. But when you take it back to the normal world, it's just a normal axe. And all of the stories and everything about it, it's not magic, it's just folklore. And that absolutely seems like something that fits into a, like, a Faye-based campaign. Yeah, that's where you go and you find Wuthrad. <laughs> uh, you know, Iskrimor's axe from Skyrim. Because <laughs> the whole thing about it is, I think it deals 20% additional damage to elves. So just have it be, you know, it deals extra damage to Faye and... All that it is, is that it's just a non-enchanted great axe. I like it. It's just really fancy looking, but it's just a regular mundane great axe. But yet the Fae, you know, knowing that would probably put so many lords making it sound like it's cursed to the wielder or whatever. So nobody wants to pick this thing up. Yeah, I absolutely love that. So you said you had a couple of other little things that you'd been working on recently that you wanted to touch on. So what have, what have you got cooking? I'm always working on things, but it, it depends on how, how long they take. I think one of the interesting things about my system that I've kind of laid out in this post is that as much as I would like to argue that you should always be explaining, or at least in-world, giving your players hints towards these resistances or you shouldn't throw your party against a creature that has 10 resistances and only one damage type that does good against it without them having a little bit of background i always think that you should be able to throw them a bone in that way something that i'm not going to touch on too much is that i even have been working on a project that essentially allows marshals to take more magical damage types into their own hands you know potentially thrown items that deal that type of damage and whatnot i think in that way it really turns it into a witcher-like game and i've definitely seen posts about that i think in that way you have to give the players a way to check what the resistances are if you can't find a way to work it into the story and that's why the party should always have a bard always have a bard <laughs> and the best way that i could figure out for that it's a bit of a quick and dirty system but the resistance checking is a proficient skill of either nature religion arcana or history and you can tell the creature's resistances if you pass a check of like their cr plus 10 so that makes the minimum of them 11 because we would just consider the everything under one to be 11 and at that point it gives you the ability to say okay so the players can roll a nature check at a CR 1, so DC 11, nature check to find out what the creatures are vulnerable to. Or with Arcana, for example, you could argue that for a lot of creatures, like oozes, constructs, aberrations, elementals, dragons, and a number of other things, but sometimes that's not the best fitting one. So it really depends on what you want to do for the players, and depends on what the creature is. So some you know, Fae would either be a nature check or a religion check, and some would be one or the other. But you could just as easily say, look, there's no way for you to know this information, so it's not going to work this time. I think giving the players the ability to do that as an action is really important. And an action is specifically what I chose because I don't also want it to step on the toes of the monster slayer ranger, who gets a very similar ability at level 3. They get an action to learn vulnerabilities, resistances, and... It doesn't take a skill check, and it's guaranteed. So it's already slightly better, but in this way, I think, keeping them both as an action, the Monster Slayer is just the best at it. But I like that. Have you ever played the old Neverwinter games? I haven't. 
Okay. So again, I've played a lot, a lot of video games more than I probably should have in my youth and current, but I enjoy my video games. But going back, Old Neverwinter was based off of third edition, I think a little bit of second edition, but there was abilities at some point, and I forget exactly what the spell or the ability was, but you could put points into it. And a lot of other RPG games have built on this too, where like the first stat would give you, you know, an idea of vulnerabilities. And if you put another level into it, you could actually learn how many hit points your opponent had left type thing. And again, it was that way to see and get a feel of combat a lot of the things you're suggesting feel like some of these stats from these old games that i remember that i enjoyed even like your whole soft resistance post which was great feels a bit like divine divinity this was an old 90s or early 2000s game and that was a lot of you had to figure out what type of creature it was and figure out you know an elemental or a magic type to match against that for whatever bonus because you needed to eke out whatever little extra bonus damage you could get or ability scores you could get and like i said a lot of what you wrote up has that feel of some of those older game systems which were just i loved how they worked so when i was reading your post i'm like this is like all the good parts of the games that they threw away trying to pair back so i was really excited for those yeah i actually do a fairly similar thing in my home game where i will allow my players to make an arcana religion or nature check to try and figure out what it is that they're fighting up against. Those would be the specific ones, but they could instead, if they're not trained in one of those, they could make a history check against anything with a slightly higher DC. Absolutely. To see if they know any lore about what they would be fighting. And so just as an example, just pulling numbers out, let's say a DC eight arcana check to figure out what, type of creature it is 11 would give you the identity of the creature you know what exactly this thing is then a 14 would allow you to get their immunities uh, 17 would be their vulnerabilities and 20 would be their resistances or some something along those lines so there is a gradient there where the better you do the more you learn and you would have to obviously adjust that a little bit depending on the CR of the monster you're facing. So how rare this thing is. Absolutely. And I think a lot of that is the, I think that's more of a fourth edition mentality, if I'm not mistaken. I haven't played yes. fourth edition, but the first thing that I, the first D&D book I ever had was a fourth edition monster manual. And I knew nothing about the game. I just liked looking at the pictures because I was very young. But as far as I remember, it has tables in there that say, you know, DC this and you learn this fact about the creature, which really is cool because you get to do lore dumps for the players if they want them because it is their choice. And that monster manual has gotten so many people who play the game. It's the art. It totally is the art. And so when we're doing our episode with World Build with us, which, you know, I'll go ahead and if you haven't gone back and listened to that episode, listen to that. And check out their episode. But they talked about, you know, and it was the monster manual that got them interested in the D&D as well, which is kind of awesome. You know, you got that similarity going. The other thing I was going to throw in kind of talking about the monster manual and those lore dumps. Have you seen, I'm guessing Ian has, but How to Train Your Dragon? Yes. So in the first one, you remember, I forget who it was, but you had the two brothers. And that's what they did is basically they were running around with, you know, the cartoon version of the monster manual. But they were able to go, oh, it's this. And they'd flip through it. I mean, that would totally be metagaming. But they were going through and they were flipping through and finding the creature so they could know, oh, it's this. It has these resistances and this weaknesses. And you can do this and this and this with your dragon, you know. And that's kind of talking about having to roll that arcana check or 
I'd even make that just a straight intelligence, you know, or a history check or whatever, you know. But again, having that wizard or that bard with the book sitting there trying to flip through, find the monster in the monster manual. I've definitely heard of people just straight up giving their players an in-world version of Volo's Guide to Monsters, right? That is an in-world character who exists. So that book technically could exist in-world as well. But the interesting thing about that is that it is canonically not correct. Right. Canonically, Volo makes up a lot of his stuff. So you could easily give them things that are wrong. So it's like any other medieval text. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and if you go through the actual 5th edition Volo's Guide to Monsters, there are notes from Elminster talking about how Volo got it wrong. <laughs> right. Which again would be like a, any other medieval text. Absolutely, yeah. I think the difference between that and the check is that with the check, you wouldn't want to give incorrect information. What you would want to give is incomplete information because you don't want to point the players in a bad direction and then go, haha, I gotcha. You know, it's more of a, you remember that this creature has something that deals with fire damage, but you don't remember whether it's positive or negative and they get the choice yeah you can be very vague you know there's the whole thing which i call fairy truth where it's true to the letter however you interpret it's on you but to the letter it is true so yeah those are definitely tools that a dm can use to work with yeah but the only time that i would even consider giving false information is if they They actually roll natural one on their (laughs) on their knowledge check but because fifth edition specifically does not have critical failures for ability checks i would still be hesitant to do that because it would have to be a critical fail that actually advanced the narrative yeah i don't want to just say no you don't get it i would give false information if it helped develop the story again like if we were in a town and we were looking for a hag coven and you found hey here's a local lore book on witches that just happened to be written by one of the hags, but the party doesn't know it. Then I'd fill all kinds of false information so they could realize that maybe that book is flawed and maybe perhaps there's something involved with whoever wrote the book might have a vested entrance so they can kind of cast some dispersion or something like that. Yeah, it gives an in-world reason for that to exist, right? You don't just lead them in the wrong direction for no reason. People don't frequently remember things completely the opposite of the way that they are. I mean, I do personally, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a very good memory, but uh, it's not a super common thing. And it doesn't feel good in game either, where it's, you feel tricked. And we are so many steps away from that adversarial Dming thing now that it's just, it's not, not for me. And right, I think yeah, and that goes back to rule number one, which applies to the DM, probably doubly so than to the players, but don't be a dick at the table. Absolutely. Just don't be a dick in general. Oh, yeah. Well, don't no, don't be a dick in your everyday life either, James. Well, that requires a little bit more extra effort. You know, I can pretend for three to four hours at a time, but more than that, and, you know, <laughs> I'm going to need a nap and a cookie and... <laughs> Just one cookie? Well, I mean, depending on how I'm feeling that day. You know, I, I do have to watch the sugar now. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been awesome talking with you, and I wanted to get back to something that we did the last time we had someone on for an interview, which is I want to make a creature on the fly because right. we are, we are a homebrew podcast and this is something that we just really enjoy doing. So I'm going back to the weird bug generator that we used back in the cultural appropriation episode with Emily. So if you've got your dice, which I do, we're going to start rolling us some dice Hooray for critters. Excellent. I'm going to go ahead and skip over the first one 
which is a 1d2 roll over whether or not it metamorphoses because I don't want to go through this twice. Fair enough. (laughs) We're at almost an hour recording time. We don't have time to run through this twice. So we're just going to run through this once. So we're going to start this off with a 1d4 roll to determine its locomotion. So if you want to go ahead and give us a 1d4 roll. Three. Three. It burrows. Oh, nice. We have a subterranean critter here. My favorite. Okay, I'm seeing honey badger. Let's go. Come on, honey badger. (laughs) (laughs) Well, depending on what this one is, we might actually end up getting there. Um, Next is a 1d6 roll for what does it eat? Two. Two. It eats plants. Okay. Had you rolled a three, we would have gotten honey. So (laughs) So close. (laughs) So So, close. So So next up is going to be a 1d8 for its size. Seven. Seven. It is human sized. Oh, my favorite. Okay. So we've got a human sized burrowing creature that eats plants. Okay. Right now I'm seeing the rabbit from Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) okay so this next one is going to be there's a d10 roll and a d100 roll one of them determines the number of limbs the other one determines the number of eyes which do we want to be which do we want a whole bunch of limbs and just a few eyes or a whole bunch of eyes and just a few limbs let's do a lot of limbs okay so give us a d10 roll for number of eyes nine Nine. Okay, this will be interesting. The last one we did had an odd number of eyes, too. And then a D100 roll for the number of limbs. 37. 37. All right, so it's got 37 limbs and nine eyes. Okay, so this will be interesting. I mean, I'm still seeing we can still get sort of a centipede sort of I'm a big fan of centipedes. The human-sized centipede? Yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's we're basically making a carrion crawler at this point that eats plants instead of people. But yeah, so we've got our burrowing creature that eats plants, is human-sized, has nine eyes and 37 limbs. All right, first off is going to be a D12 for its method of defense. Six. Six. It has horns. Oh, I'm nice. liking this thing. Okay, I can see that because it is an herbivore. And it burrows. Um, and it burrows. So yeah, it could it could be using the horns as sort of like a break up the dirt and then uh, using all of these limbs to just sort of funnel it out of the way. Yeah. Kind of like, like a conveyor belt, yeah. Yeah, kind of like an elongated bullet. Okay. So yeah, I'm, I'm liking where this is going so far. So give us a D20 roll for its quirks. 13. 13. Well, this is very appropriate. It digs slash creates pitfall traps. Hmm. So it's kind of like an antlion in that case. Yes. Alrighty. The only thing is, how are we going to reconcile that with it eating plants? Well, I think maybe the pitfalls aren't intentional. Yeah. I think it probably okay. goes burrowing for roots and just happens to leave uh-huh, behind. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking it, that maybe it goes and it burrows out like where a tree was. And so it kind of just collapses and kind of goes under. And as it moves on, you walk through and you just fall in. Okay. So kind of like the concept of Widowmaker trees. Yeah. So basically it'll be a dead freestanding tree out in the woods that the entire underground root system of this tree has been eaten away. And so it's just basically sitting there waiting for a good stiff breeze to blow it over. And there's like three, four inches of dirt 
sitting up there. And so you get close to this tree and you just fall in. That would be great. And you break the surface tension of the dirt and then this giant dead tree falls in on top of you. I like that. So if you're trying to hunt one of these creatures, it's not that the creature itself is dangerous, but its habitat and its ranges because there are so many pitfall traps. Yeah. It's almost like a minefield at that point where you have to be very careful. Maybe it has some intelligence in the way it designs that too, that it knows that certain areas are going to, so maybe it bottlenecks things in. So it has like a den to escape to or whatever. Okay. All right. So now we're going to make it weird. All right. So give me another D100 roll. 67. 67. It swarms inhabit dead bodies and pilot them. Oh, God. I can dragon graveyard. No, I got this. Okay. This is what treants actually are. Oh, yes. They're these creatures that crawl inside of dead trees and walk around in them using these dead trees as exoskeletons. Or even if you wanted to skip the metamorphosis thing, you could have a whole life cycle like the spice worms in Dune. So like the burrowing part is the larval stage. And then when they hit adulthood, they burrow into a tree. And that is their adult stage. That's okay. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So just because I am the way I am, I'm also going to roll a D100 on this quirks thing and making it weird. And we're going to see what we get. 55. Ooh, is powerfully attracted to holy water slash energy slash relics. Oh, that fits. And that makes a lot of sense, too, because you'll have that whole weird life cycle and everything like that. It is the natural parasite of druid groves. Oh, God, yes, yes. And people really want to go not only hunting for these, but you would naturally find artifacts and stuff in the pitfall traps, right? Very likely, yeah, yeah, because you'd have other adventurers. So, you know, you go hunting these things, and if other adventurers are gone, then you can just, they're not using them anymore. Yeah, either they fell in and died, or the creature itself just happened to hoard it into one of these giant holes. Yeah, that would give it a lot of parallels with the Grick. Because the Grick, whenever it kills something, it takes it back to its lair and it eats all the edible parts and everything else just sort of collects in this refuse pile. So if it's picked off three or four groups of adventurers before you kill it, you'll find its lair and its refuse pile that's filled with all of these various objects that it just didn't eat because they weren't edible. So I can definitely see maybe even it holds them in its body. Well, it's not eating the characters because it is it is herbivore. It does well, yeah, fun. I guess yeah. so, yeah. But that would be if you managed to kill one of these adult stage, if you will, the walking tree ones, that it would be something that once you kill it and you break it open, all of these, it's kind of like that video where uh, someone is redoing the drywall in their house and they peel the drywall off and all of these pounds and pounds of acorns fall out of the walls. (laughs) Yeah, that sort of deal where you break it open and all of these various magic items or various shiny items that it happened to magpie and pick up just come tumbling out of it. That's awesome. I love that. Excellent. Yeah, that was fun. That was these always are fun when we do these. Yeah, I like that one. So what do we call it? Good question. I suck at naming things. We'll name it the Bob Rossians. (laughs) (laughs) happy little tree that's right i really don't know Um, well at that point you said it was the natural enemy of druid groves so it could be like a grove digger yeah grove borer yeah Yeah. because because there there are there are borer beetles Uh, i think it's the emerald ash borer is one of the more common ones that is actually actual real life tree parasites so yeah that could be sylvian borer 
that either one would work. I yeah, like that a, one. Yeah. Yeah. A grove borer, I think. Cool. Because they're attracted to that magical essence that a druid grove would have. So they would be naturally drawn to it. And so the druids would be on constant alert to keep tabs on, okay, do we have any sudden sinkholes opening up nearby where one of these things is starting to move in? Imagine a druid grove where like killing one of these things was their rite of passage. Ooh, that would be cool. And because we're talking about vulnerabilities uh, in this, what about lightning? Because they don't want to get struck by lightning because they're trees. Yeah, lightning would work. Again, fire would be the obvious one. Lightning would work. I'd probably give it a soft resistance to poison, perhaps, since it is both above ground and low ground and it is kind of a blight in its own right. Oh, yes. Yeah, so what do you have in mind? I'm trying to think. Lightning would work particularly for the adults. Fire, I would definitely, like I said, want to give it the poison resistance. Cold vulnerability, just because you could freeze them out. And again, that's why you're starting to talk to things like, again, living here in the American Southeast, things like the cicada and the mosquitoes. Everybody talks about when winter comes, all the bugs finally die. You know, that's that kind of thing. And depending okay. on how cold it gets, if you get a real cold snap, then obviously some of your old dead limbs and stuff can snap. So I could see a vulnerability to cold, perhaps. Oh, yeah. I think that definitely makes sense. We could even borrow the one I have in the post there for plants, where it just slows them down, slows their movement speed or anything yeah, like absolutely. that could work. Awesome. That's super cool. Or even, you know, because you being far further north than us, you would have a little more knowledge on this. But if the winter gets especially cold, you end up freezing the water in the trees and trees just explode. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, that would be very bad for them, I think. Yeah, so, so I, would, I would definitely see if you manage to kill one with cold damage, it explodes. And yeah, basically, like, it's, if it's one of the above ground ones, it explodes and all the wood goes out in shrapnel and you have to make a dex save against the shrapnel. 1d6 for 15 feet. And the treasures. Oh, yeah, and the oh, treasures. yeah, definitely. So it's just, uh, it's like a loot goblin. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Bling, 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 bling. <laughs> I love Perfect. it. Perfect, well done. Beautifully um, rounded out. All right. Well, thank you yes, so very you much, so much for agreeing to come on and talk with us and for bringing all of these wonderful ideas to us. Thank you so much for having me. Do you happen to have anybody that any content creators that you would especially want to give a shout out to, you know, anybody who you're familiar with that you would want to bring a little bit of light to their work? Honestly, there's just so many people. I think really the communities over on Reddit are excellent and a lot of people make very very good content on that so i think my thing is just look at what subreddits exist for you know DD content DD behind the screen for example is the one where i posted my the majority of my posts and and it is of, amazing yeah a lot of really cool people are working on those yeah i was gonna say go ahead and call out but yeah DD behind the screen i was gonna say call out some subreddits if you want to say hi mom now's the time you're internet famous <laughs> <laughs> I told a couple of my coworkers about this, so I'm sure they'll be awesome. hearing about it. Actually, you know what? You talked, you worked at a bookstore. Do you want to go? Do we want to see if we give them a plug for the bookstore? So, I mean, if people are listening in the area, then say, hey, check out the bookshop. Or uh, Yeah, I mean, if you want to go ahead and shout out your bookstore, you can go ahead and do that. I think my Reddit's a little more anonymous than that. But, uh... <laughs> That's fine. If yeah, you're, no, if no, you're... Uh, Support your local bookstores, I guess. Yeah, really, yeah. We don't like Amazon here, so go <laughs> spend some money at your local independent bookstores, especially with COVID going on. They need it. Awesome. Well done. And go to your independent, your local game stores so you can actually buy the cool alternate cover books Absolutely. because they don't cost anymore. You can just only get them at your local store. And you get some of that awesome art. Like I said, that art really does bring a lot of people to the table. The Candlekeep book is excellent. I just got mine recently. It's Amazing. That's on my two purchase list. 
I still need to go and pick my copy up. So thank you again. I keep saying this, but thank you again for joining us. Anytime. I'd love to be back on if you guys have anything else you want to talk to me about. Yeah. Yeah, that, that'd that be sounds, great. That sounds yeah. great. Yeah, I, I saw that you had a post recently about breaking the blade singer. <laughs> um, I haven't gotten a chance to read it yet, but we may have to talk a little bit after I get done reading that. Absolutely. I, I've got a lot of posts on there and a lot of them didn't get a ton of attention. So I personally find a lot of them to be really fun. So check me out on Reddit. I try to post new stuff occasionally, very infrequently, but I, yeah, Moth Prophet on Reddit. Awesome. So if anyone listening has any comments that they want to give for our show or any uh, ideas that they want us to cover, you can send us an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing my Shakespeare and Insult page a day calendar inspired roleplay prompts six days a week. They're going up on the Twitter account and then they go up onto our Instagram and Facebook accounts at Undercommon Taste. We have recently started our Patreon account. So if you like what we are hearing and you want to help us a little bit financially, go ahead on over there to patreon.com slash undercommon taste. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. We're also developing some nice trinkets and tidbits for our different patron levels. And eventually, hopefully, we will actually be publishing some of our works too. So you'll be able to find those there. It's not just a uh, Harry Tassel's coin, but we actually do have, uh, like I said, some really neat things we're working on bringing to our listeners as well and our patrons. Yes. And you can find our podcast on most any podcatcher that you use. Uh, we're on Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, all of the big ones. So if you would give us a like, give us a comment, give us a rating. Definitely rate and review. Anything that can help our visibility, we would greatly appreciate it. So thank you again for listening and we'll see you next week. Happy gaming, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at Undercommon Taste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCT Homebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccrowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.